welcome again to Nighttime Reading. Um, this is the Thursday edition, and it is going to be, um, as you all know, the War of the Worlds Chapter 11, Captain of I have already said that my storms of emotion have a trick of exhausting themselves. After time, I discovered that I was cold and wet, and with little pools of water about me on the near carpet. I got up almost mechanically and went into the dining room and drank some whiskey. And then I was moved to change my clothes. After I had done that, I went upstairs to my study. But why I did so, I do not know. The window of my study looks over the trees and railway towards Horsel Common. In the hurry of our departure, this window had been left open. The passage was dark and by contrast with the picture of the window frame closed, the side of the room seemed impenetrably dark. I stopped short in the doorway. The thunderstorm had passed. The towers of the Oriental College and the pine trees about it had gone. And very far away, lit by a vivid red glare, the comet about the sand pits was visible. Across the light, huge black shapes, grotesque and strange, moved busily to and fro. It seemed indeed as if the whole country set in that direction was on fire. A broad hillside set with minute tongues of flame, swaying and writhing with the gusts of the dying storm, and throwing a red reflection upon the cloud scud above. Every now and then, a haze of smoke from some nearer conflagration drove across the window and hid the Martian shapes. I could not see what they were doing, nor the clear form of them, nor recognize the black objects they were busied upon. Neither could I see the mirror fire, though the reflections of it danced on the wall and ceiling of the study. A sharp, resinous tang of burning was in the air. I closed the door noiselessly and crept towards the window. As I did so, the view opened out until, on the other hand, it reached the house about walking station, and on the other to the charred and blackened, blackened pine woods of Bifit. They were the light down below the hill, on the railway, near the arch, and several of the houses along the Maybury Road and streets near the station were glowing rays. The light upon the railway puzzled me at first. They were black, they were a black heap and a vivid glare, and to the right of that a row of yellow oblongs. When I perceived this was a wrecked train, the four parts smashed and on fire, the hinder carriages still upon the rails. Between these main centers of light, the houses, the train, and the burning county towards trouble, stretched irregular patches of dark country, broken here and there by intervals of dimly glowing and smoking wind. It was the strangest spectacle 
That black expanse set the fire. It reminded me more than anything else of the potteries at night. At first I could distinguish no people at all, though I peered silently away. Later I saw against the light of walking station a number of black figures hurrying one after the other across the line. And this was the little world in which I had been living securely for years. This fiery chaos. What had happened in the last seven hours I still did not know. Nor did I know, though I was beginning to guess, the relation between these mechanical colossi and the sluggish lumps I had seen disgorging from the soul. With a queer feeling of impersonal interest, I turned my desk chair to the window, sat down, and stared at the blackened country, and particularly at the three gigantic black things that were going to and fro in the glare from the sand pits. They seemed amazingly busy. I began to ask myself what they could be. Were they intelligent mechanisms? Such a thing I felt was impossible. Or did a Martian sit within each, ruling, directing, using, much as a man brain, man's brain sits and rules in his body? I began to compare the things to human machines, to ask myself for the first time in my life how an ironclad or steam engine would seem to an intelligent lower animal. The storm left the sky clear, and over the smoke of the burning land, the little fading pinpoint of Mars was dropping into the west, when a soldier came into my garden. I heard a slight scraping at the fence and roused myself from my lethargy that had fallen upon me. I looked down and saw him dimly, clambering over the pavements. At the sight of another human being, my torpor passed, and I leaned out of the window eagerly. Hissed, I said in a whisper. He stopped astride of the fence in doubt. Then he came over and crossed the lawn to the corner of the house. He bent down and stepped softly. Who's there? He said, also whispering, standing under the window and peering out. Where are you going? I asked. God knows. Are you trying to hide? That's it. Come into the house. I went down and fastened the door and let him in, and locked the door again. I could not see his face. He was hatless, and his coat was unbuttoned. My God, he said as I turned him in, what has happened? What happened? What hasn't? In the obscurity I could see he made a gesture of despair. They wiped us out, simply wiped us out. He repeated again and again. He followed me almost mechanically into a dining room. Take him some whiskey, I said, pouring out a stiff dose. He drank it. And then abruptly he sat down before the table, put his head into his arms, and began to sob and weep like a little boy, in a perfect passion of emotion, while I, with a curious forgetfulness of my own recent despair, stood beside him, wondering. 
It was a long time before he could steady his nerves to answer my questions. And then he answered perplexingly and broke. He was a driver in the artillery and had only come into action about seven. At that time, firing was going on across the continent, and it was said the first party of Martians were crawling slowly towards their second cylinder under cover of a metal shield. Later, the shield staggered up on tripod legs and became the first of the fighting machines I had seen. The gun he drove the gun he drove had been unlimbered near Horsa in order to command his sandals, and its arrival was that had precipitated the action. As the limber as the limber gunners went to the rear, his horse trod into a rabbit hole and came down, throwing him into the compression on the ground. At the same moment, the gun exploded behind him and the ammunition blew up. There was fire all about him, and he found himself lying under the heap of charred dead men and dead horses. Are they still, he said, scared out of my wits, with the four-quarter of a horse atop me? We've been wiped out, and the smell put gone like burnt meat. I was hurt across the back by the fall of the and there I had to lie until I felt better. Just like Gray had been a minute before, then stumbled, spang, swish, wiped out, he said. He had hid under the dead horse for a long time, keeping out furtively across the common. The cardigan men had tried a rush in skirmishing order at the pit, simply to be swept out of existence. Then the monster had risen to its feet, and had begun to walk leisurely to and fro across the pond, turning about exactly like a head of a cowled human being. A kind of arm carried a complicated metal case, about which green flashes skittled, and out of the funnel of this smoke the heat ray. In a few minutes, there was, so far as the soldier could see, not a living thing left upon the common. Every bush and tree upon it that was not already blackened skeleton was burning. The hussars had been on the road beyond the curvature of the ground, and he saw nothing. He heard the maxims rattle for a time and then become still. The giant saved walking station and its cluster of houses until the last. Then, in a moment, the heat ray was brought to bear, and the town became a heap of fiery ruins. Then the thing shut off the heat ray, and turning its back on the artillery man, began to waddle away towards the smoldering pine woods that sheltered the second cylinder. As it did so, a second glittering titan built itself up out of it. The second monster followed the first, and at that the artilleryman began to crawl very cautiously across the hot heather ash towards Horsley. He managed to get alive into the ditch by the side of the road, 
and so escaped to walking. There his story, his story became ejaculatory. The place was impassable. It seems there were a few people alive there, frantic for the most part, and many burned and scalded. He was turned aside by the fire and hid among some almost scorching heaps of broken wall as one of the Martian giants returned. He saw this one pursue a man, catch him up in one of his steely tentacles, and knock his head against the trunk of a pine tree. At last, after nightfall, the artilleryman made a rush for it and got over the railway in vain. Since then, he had been skulking along towards Maybury in the hope of getting out of danger to London. People were hiding in trenches and cellars, and many of the survivors had come off towards walking village and sand. He had been consumed with thirst until he found one of the water mains near the railway, Arch smashed, and the water bubbling out like a spring upon the road. That was a story I got from him, bit by bit. He grew calmer telling me and trying to make me see the things he had seen. He'd eaten no food since midday, he told me early in his narrative, and I found some mutton and bread in the pantry and brought it into the room. We lit no lamp for fear of trapping the marshes, and ever and, er and ever and again our hands would touch upon bread or meat. As he talked, things about us came darkly out of the darkness, and the trampled bushes and broken rose trees outside the window grew distinct. It would seem that a number of men or animals had rushed across the lawn. I began to see his face, blackened and haggard, as no doubt mine was also. When he had finished eating, we went softly upstairs to my study and looked again out of the open window. In one night, the valley had become a valley of ashes. The fires had dwindled now. Where flames had been, there were now streamers of smoke, but the countless ruins of shattered and gutted houses and blasted and blackened trees that night had hidden stood out gaunt and terrible in the pitiless light of dawn. Yet here and there, some object had the luck to escape. A white railway sign there, the end of a gray greenhouse here, white and fresh amid the wreckage. Never before in the history of warfare had destruction been so indiscriminate and so universal. And shining with the glowing light of the east, three of the metallic giants stood about the pits, their cowls rotating though they were surveying the desolation they had made. It seemed to me that the pit had been enlarged, and ever and again puffs of vivid green vapor streamed up and out of it towards the brightening dawn, streamed up, whirled, broke, and vanished. Beyond were the pillars of fire about Trotham. They became pillars of bloodshot smoke at the first touch of day. That is the end.
16 minutes. Starting with chapter 12, and which titled Chapter 12, What I Saw of the Destruction of Waybridge and Shepherd. Dawn grew brighter, we withdrew from the window from which we had watched the marshes and went very quietly downstairs. The artilleryman agreed with me that the house was no place to stay in. He proposed, he said, to make his way Londonward and there and thence rejoin his battery, number 12 of the horse artillery. My plan was to return at once to Leatherhead. And so greatly had the strength of the Martians impressed me that I had determined to take my wife to New Haven and go with her out of the country forthwith. For I already perceived clearly that the country about London must inevitably be the scene of a disastrous struggle before such creatures as these could be destroyed. Between us and Leatherhead, however, lay the third cylinder, with its guarding giants. Had I been alone, I think I should have taken my chance and struck across country. But the artillery man dissuaded me. It's no kindness to the sort of to the right sort of wife, he said, to make her a widow. And in the end I agreed to go with him, under cover of the woods, northward, as far as Street Coffin, before I parted with Thence I would make a big detour by Epsom to reach Leatherhead. I should have started at once, but my companion had been in active service, and he knew better than that. He made me ransack the house for a flask, which he filled with whiskey, and we lined every available pocket with packets of biscuits and slices of meat. Then he crept out of the house, and ran as quickly as we could down the ill-made road by which I had come overnight. The houses seemed deserted. In the road lay a ground of lay a group of three charred bodies close together, struck dead by the heat rain. And here and there things that people had dropped: a clock, a slipper, a silver spoon, and like four values. At the corner turning up towards the post office, a little cart, filled with boxes and furniture and horseless, heeled over on a broken wheel. A cash, box, a cash box had been hastily smashed open and thrown under the debris. Except the lodge at the orphanage, which was still on fire, none of the houses had suffered very greatly. The heat ray had shaved the chimney tops and passed. Yet save ourselves, there did not seem to be a living soul on neighboring Hill. The majority of the inhabitants had escaped, I suppose, by way of old walking road, the road I had taken when I drove to Leatherhead, or if they had hidden. 
We went down the lane by the body of the man in black, sodden now from the overnight hail, and broke into the woods at the front of the hill. We pushed through these towards the railway without meeting a soul. The woods at the foot of the hill. The woods across the line were but the scarred and blackened remains of woods. For the most part, the trees had fallen. But a certain proportion still stood. Dismal gray stems with a dark brown foliage instead of green. On our side, the fire had done no more than scorch the newer trees. It had failed to secure its footing. In one place, the woodman had been at work on Saturday. Trees felled and freshly trimmed lay in a clearing, with heaps of sawdust by the sawing machine in its engine. Hard by was a temporary hut, deserted. There was not a breath of wind this morning, and everything was strangely still. Even the birds were hushed, and as we hurried along, I and the artilleryman talked in whispers of and looked now and again over our shoulders. Once or twice, we stopped to listen. After a time, we drew near the road, and as we did, so we heard the clatter of hoofs and saw that the tree stems three cavalry soldiers riding slowly towards walking. We hailed them, and they halted when we hurried towards them. It was a lieutenant and a couple of privates from the cars, with a stand like a theodolite, which the artilleryman took me, told me was a heliograph. You were the first man I've seen coming this way this morning, said the lieutenant. What's brewing? His voice and face were eager. The men behind him stared curiously. The artilleryman jumped down the bank into the road and saluted. Gun destroyed last night, sir. Have been hiding, trying to rejoin the battery, sir. We'll come inside of the Martians, I expect, about half a mile along this road. What the dickens are they like? asked the lieutenant. Giants in armor, hundred feet high. Three legs and a body like movement, and a mighty great head in the hood, sir. Get out, said the confounded nonsense. You'll see, sir. They carry a kind of box, sir, that shoots fire and strikes you dead. What do you mean, a gun? No, sir, said the artilleryman, and began a vivid count of the Halfway through, the lieutenant interrupted him and looked up at me. I was still standing at the bank of the side of the road. It's perfectly true, I said. Well, I suppose it's my business to see it too. Look here. We're detailed here, clearing people out of their houses. You'd better go along and report yourself to Brigadier General Marvin and tell him all you know. Is that Waybridge? You know the way? I do, I said. And he turned his horse southward again. Half a mile, you say, at most. Further along, we came upon a ground of three women and two children in a row, busy clearing out a laborer's cottage. They had got hold of the little hand truck and were piling it up with unclean-looking bundles and shabby furniture. 
They were all too assiduously engaged to talk to us as we passed. By Byfleet Station, we emerged from the pine trees and found the country calm and peaceful under the morning sunlight. We were far beyond the range of the Hebrew. Had it not been for the silent desertion of some of the houses, the stirring movement of packing and others, and a knot of soldiers standing on the bridge over the railway and staring down the line towards walking. The day would have seemed like any other Sunday. Several farm wagons and carts were moving frequently along the road to Adelstone. And suddenly, through the gate of a field we saw, across the stretch of flat meadow, six twelve-pounders standing neatly at equal distances, pointing towards walking. The gunner stood by the guns waiting, and the ammunition wagons were at a business-like distance. Business distance. That's good, said I. They will give one fair shot at any rate. The artilleryman hesitated at the gate. I shall go on. Further on towards Waybridge, just over the bridge, there were a number of men in white fatigue jackets, throwing up a long rampart, and more guns beyond. It's bows and arrows against the lightning anyhow, said the artilleryman. They haven't seen that fire beat yet. The officers, who were not actively engaged, stood and stared over the treetops southwestward, and the men digging around, the men digging, would stop every now and again to stare in the same direction. Byfleet was in a tumult. People packing and a score of hussars. Some of them dismounted, some of them on horseback, were hunting them about. Three or four black government wagons, with crosses in white circles, and an old omnibus, among other vehicles, were being loaded in the village street. There were scores of people, and most of them sufficiently sabbatical to have assumed their best clothes. The soldiers were having the greatest difficulty in making them realize the gravity of their position. We saw one shriveled old fellow in a huge, with a huge box, and a score or more of flower pots containing orchids, angrily expostulating with the corporal, who would leave them behind. I stopped and heard his arm. Do you know what's over there? I said, pointing towards the pine tops that had been watching. Eh, said he, turning. I was explaining these. It's valuable. Death. Death is coming. Death. And leaving him to digest that if he could. I hurried on after the artillery. At the corner, I looked back. The soldier had left him, and he was still standing by his box with the pots of orchids on the livid, staring vaguely over the trees. No one in Weybridge could tell us where the headquarters were established. The whole place was in such confusion as I had ever never seen in any town before. Carts, carriages everywhere, and the most astonishing miscellany of conveyances and horseflesh. The respectable inhabitants of the place, men in golf and boating costumes, wives prettily dressed, were packing, riverside loafers energetically helping, children excited, and for the most part highly delighted at the astonishing variation of their Sunday experiences. 
In the midst of it all, the worthy vicar was very luckily holding an early celebration, and his bell was jangling out above the excitement. I and the artillery man seated at the step of the drinking fountain made a very passable meal upon which we had brought with us. Patrols of soldiers, when here no longer in the cellars, but grenadiers in white, were warning people to move now or to take refuge in their cellars as soon as the firing began. We saw as we crossed the railway bridge that a growing crowd of people had assembled in and about the railway station, and the swarming platform was piled with boxes and packages. The ordinary traffic had been stopped, I believe, in order to allow the passage of troops and guns to Jersey. And I have heard since that a savage struggle occurred for places in the special trains that were put on at a later hour. We remained at Waybridge until midday. And at that hour, we found ourselves at the place near Shepparton Lock, where the way and the Thames joined. Part of the time we spent helping two old women to pack the little cart. The way has a trouble mouth, and at this point, boats are to be hired, and there was a ferry across the river. On the Shepparton side was an inn with a lawn, and beyond that, the tower of Shepparton Church. It has been replaced by a spire, rose above the trees. Here we found an excited and noisy crowd of fugitives. As yet, the fight had not grown to a pin. But there were, set, there were already far more people than all the boats going to and fro could enable to cross. People came panting along after heavy, under heavy burdens. One husband and wife were even carrying a small outhouse door between the two of them, with some of their household goods piled down. One man told us he meant to try to get away from Shepherdson Station. There was a lot of shouting. And one man was even jesting. The idea people seemed to have here was that the Martians were simply formidable human beings who might attack and sack the town and be certainly destroyed in the end. Every now and then, people would glance nervously across the lake at the, wind, at the meadows towards Jersey, but everything over there was still. Across the Thames, 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 Except just where the boats landed, everything was quiet, in vivid contrast with the Surrey side. The people who landed there from the boats went tramping off down the lane. The big ferry boats had just made a journey. Three or four soldiers stood on the lawn of the inn, staring and jesting at the fugitives without offering to help. The inn was closed, as it was now within prohibited hours. What's that? cried the boatman. And shut up, you fool, said a man near me to the yelping dog. Then the sound came again, this time from the direction of Tripsy. A muffled fled. The sound of a gun. The fighting was beginning. Almost immediately, unseen batteries across the river to our right, unseen because of the trees, took up the chorus, firing heavily one after the other. A woman screamed. 
Everyone stood arrested by the sudden stir of battle. Near us, and yet invisible to us. Nothing was to be seen save flat meadows, cows feeding undiscernedly for the most part, and silvery pollard willows, motionless in the warm sunlight. The soldiers will stop them, said a woman beside me, doubtfully. A haziness rose over the treetops. Then suddenly we saw a rush of smoke far away at the river. A puff of smoke that jerked us into the air and hung. That jerked up into the air and hung. And forthwith the ground heaved underfoot and a heavy explosion shook the air, smashing two or three windows in the houses near, and leaving us astonished. There they are, shouted a man in blue jersey. Yonder, do you see them? Yonder. Quickly, one after the other, one, two, three, four of the armored marshes appear, far away over the little trees, across the flat meadows that stretch towards Shirtsey, and striding hurriedly off towards the river. Little cowled figures, little cowled figures, they seem at first, going with a rolling motion and as fast as flying birds, then advancing obliquely towards us. Came a fifth. Their armored bodies glittered in the sun as they swept swiftly toward forward upon the guns, growing rapidly larger as they drew nearer. One on the extreme left, the remotest that is, flourished a huge case high in the air, and the ghostly, terrible heat ray I had already seen on Friday night smote towards Tracy and struck the town. At sight of these strange, swift, and terrible creatures, the crowd near the water's edge seemed to me to be for a moment horror-struck. There was no screaming or shouting, but a silence. Then a hoarse murmur and a movement of feet, a splashing from the water. A man, too frightened to drop the portmanteau, he carried on his shoulder, swung around and sent me staggering with a blow from the corner of his curtain. A woman thrust at me with her hand to and rushed past me. I rushed I turned with the rush of the people, but I was not too terrified for thought. The terrible heat ray was in my mind. To get underwater, that was it. Get underwater, I shouted, unheeded. I faced about again and rushed towards the approaching marshal, rushed right down the gravelly beach and headlong into the water. Others did the same. A boatload of people putting back, putting back came leaping out as I rushed past. The stones under my feet were muddy and slippery, and the river was so low that I ran perhaps twenty feet of scarcely waist deep. Then, as the Martians towered overhead, Scarcely a couple of hundred yards away, I flung myself toward forward under the surface. The splashes of the people in the boats leaping into the river sounded like thunderclaps in my ears. People were landing hastily on both sides of the river, 
but the Martian machine took no more notice for the movement, for the moment of the people running this way and that, than a man would of the confusion of ants in a nest against which his foot was kicked. When, half suffocated, I raised my head above the water, the Martian's hood painted, pointed at the batteries that were still firing across the river, and as it advanced, it swung loose what must have been the generator of the heat ray. In another moment, it was on the bank, and in a stride, waiting halfway across, the knees of its foremost legs bent at the further bank, and in another moment, it raised itself to its full height again, close to the village of Shepherdton. Forthwith, the six guns, which unknown to everyone on the right bank, had been hiding behind the outskirts of the village, fired simultaneously. The sudden roar of percussions, the sudden near percussion, the last close on the first, made my heart jump. The monster was already raising the case generating the heat ray as the first shell burst six yards above me. I gave a cry of astonishment. I saw and thought nothing of the other four Martian monsters. My attention was, was riveted upon the near incident. Simultaneously, two other shells burst in the air near the body as the hood twisted around in time to recede but not in time to dodge the fourth shell. The shell burst clean in the face of the thing. The hood bulged, clashed, and was whirled off in a dozen stitch-chattered fragments of red flesh and glittering metal. Hit, said I, with something between a scream and a cheer. I heard answering shouts from the people in the water above me. I could have leapt out of the water with that momentary exultation. The decapitated colossus reeled like a drunken giant, but it did not fall over. It recovered its balance by a miracle, and no longer heeding its steps, and with the camera that fired the heat ray now rigidly upheld, it reeled swiftly upon Shepherdton. The living intelligence, the Martian within its hood, was slain and splashed in the four winds of heaven and the thing was now but a mere intricate device of metal whirling to destruction. It drove along in a straight line, incapable of guidance. It struck the tower of the Shepherdson Church, smashing it down as the impact of a battery ram might have done. Swerved aside, blundered on, and collapsed with tremendous force into the river out of my sight. A violent explosion shook the air, and a spout of water, steam, mud, and shattered metal shot far up into the sky. As the camera of the heat ray hit the water, the latter had immediately flashed into steam. In another moment, a huge wave, like a muddy tidal bore, tidal bore but almost scaldingly hot, came sweeping round the bend of the stream. I saw people struggling shorewards and heard their screaming and shouting faintly above the seething and roar of the Martians' collapse.
For a moment, I heeded nothing of the heat, forgot the patent need of self-preservation. I splashed through the tumultuous water, pushed aside the man in black to do so, until I could see round the bend. Half a dozen deserted boats pitched aimlessly upon the confusion of the waves. The fallen Martian came into sight downstream, lying across the river, and for the most part, submerged. Thick clouds of steam were pouring off the wreckage, and through the tumultuously whirling wisps I could see, intermittently and vaguely, the gigantic limbs churning the water and flinging a splash and spray of mud and froth into the air. The tentacles swayed and struck like living arms, and save for the helpless purposelessness of its movements, it was as if some wounded thing were struggling for its life amid the waves. Enormous quantities of a ruddy brown fluid were spurting up in noisy jets out of the machine. My attention was diverted from this death movie by a furious yelling. Like that of the thing called it a siren in our manufacturing towns. A man knee deep in the towing path shouted inaudibly to me and pointed. Looking back, I saw the other marshes advancing with gigantic strides down the river bank from the direction of Church. The Shepperton guns spoke this time unavailingly. At that, I ducked at once under the water, and holding my breath until movement was agony, blundered painfully head under the surface as long as I could. The water was in a tumult about me, rapidly growing hotter. When for a moment I raised my head to take breath and throw the hair and water from my eyes, the steam was rising in a whirling white fog that at first hid the Martian altogether. The noise was deafening. Then I saw him dimly, colossal figures of gray, magnified by the mist. They had passed by me, and two were stooping over the throbbing, tumultuous ruins of their comrade. The third and fourth stood beside him in the water, one perhaps two hundred yards from me, the others towards Lauka. The generators of the heat rays waved high, and missing beams smoked down this way and that. The air was full of sound, a deafening and confusing conflict of noises. The clangorous din of the merchants, the crash of falling houses, the flood of trees, fences, sheds flashing into flames and the crackling and roaring of fire. Dense black smoke was leaping up to mingle with the steam from the river, and as the heat ray went to and fro over the wave ridge, its impact was marked by flashes of incandescent light that gave me yet that gave place at once to a smoky dance of lurid flames. The nearer houses still stood in front, awaiting their fate, shadowy, faint, and pallid in the steam, with the fire behind them going to and fro.
a moment, perhaps I stood there, breast high in the almost boiling water, dumbfounded at my position, hopeless of escape. Through the reek, I could see the people who had been with me in the river scrambling out of the water through the reeds, like little frogs hurrying from grass from the advance of man, or running to and fro in utter dismay at the towing path. Then suddenly the white flashes of the heat ray came leaping towards me. The houses caved in as they dissolved at its touch. And darting out flames, the trees changed to fire with a roar. The ray flickered up and down the towing path, <laughs> licking up the people who ran this way and that, and came down to the water's edge not fifty yards from where I stood. It swept across the river to Shepperton, and the water in its track rose in boiling wheel, crested with steam. I turned shoreward. In another moment, the huge wave, well nigh at the boiling point, had rushed upon me. I screamed aloud and scalded, half-blinded, agonized. I staggered through the leaping, hissing water towards the shore. Had my foot stumbled? It would have been the end. I fell helplessly in full sight of the Martians upon the broad, bare, gravelly spit that runs down to mark the angle of the way in Thames. I expected nothing but death. I have a dim memory of the foot of a Martian coming down within a score of yards above my head, driving straight into the loose gravel, whirling it this way and that and lifting again of a long suspense and then the four carrying the debris of their comrade between them now clear and then presently faint through a veil of smoke receding inter interminably as it seemed to me across the vast space of river and meadow and then very slowly I realized that by a miracle, I had escaped. So that is those two chapters, and we'll be starting again next Thursday at 8 o'clock. We're starting at 8 o'clock tomorrow. I mean, we're starting next Thursday at 8 o'clock with the next chapter, which is chapter 13, How I Fell In with a Curate. So thank you everyone for popping in and listening. It's been about 52 minutes of recorded video. So um, we'll see you tomorrow, 8 o'clock on wait a second, I'm not going to do it tomorrow. Um, actually tomorrow I will have another meeting so I will be once again doing a free recording, um, and it will come out at eight o'clock. And everybody will be able to see uh, Fairy, fairy Tale Friday. So if anybody has a fairy tale that they would like to see or hear read, uh, let me know um, either on the page or by email or on Facebook or on Discord. Just give me a chance to see if I can find that fairy tale, and either tomorrow or next Friday, um, I'll be able to read this for you. 
Okay, so, whoa, that was not fun. Um, my fan just covering. Freak me out. Of course, of course. Um, so my phone's getting really, really, really warm hot. So I better stop recording at some point. So thank you guys for popping in. See you tomorrow. And talk to you later. And you have a good evening. Thank you.